somebody sounds terrible besides me. Maybe it was Kaufman. <laughs> Bob, I don't know. Somebody else. Um, I sat on this stool last week because I knew I was getting sick. I felt weak. And uh, Larry graciously offered to teach today for me. And Tuesday, I assured him I'd be fine by today. And I regretted that because by the time I realized I shouldn't be trying to do this, it was too late to ask him to come in. So you're getting kind of leftovers today. You're stuck with that. And that's just the way it is. Okay. This is an image we used uh, not too many months ago in another study about uh, Christ coming as king. I wanted to use the image in the text out of 1 Kings 10 as introduction for where we're going this morning in the Job series. You remember the story when young Solomon comes on the scene? You know, he's son to the famous King David, and what's he going to be? What's his kingdom going to look like? And God shows up one night to him in a dream and says, uh, what would you like? And Solomon says, well, I'm... I just lack any ability to lead your people. So if you give me wisdom to lead your people, that'd be a good thing. So uh, God says, wow, you know, because you asked for that, not something for yourself, I'm going to give you the wisdom. I'm also going to give you all the things you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you wealth. No one on the earth will be wiser than you. Um, you're going to be the man. And he is, of course. And when you get to chapter 10 in 1 Kings, um, news of Solomon has spread throughout the, the world. And there's a, a queen that lives south of Israel, and she's heard these stories also. Now, as she hears them, she assumes that they cannot be true, that the stories she's hearing about this king, this wonderkind in Israel, they're too good to be true. There's no way he's that smart. There's no way his kingdom's that wealthy, whatever. So she gathers her royal entourage, and she heads north. And she gets to hang out with Solomon in his court, at his table. She has brought a ton of questions with him, questions that she assumes will stump him. And he answers every one of them. And in the text, it actually says the heart goes out of her, meaning she's defeated. He, it, it's better. And she says, half of it wasn't told me. In other words, her deal was, the more I see, the better you get. There doesn't appear to be an end of the excellence. I heard the stories. The stories were grand, but the stories can't do justice to your reality. And as we're looking in this morning in Job, and looking at Job's righteousness, uh, one of the things that I hope we see and one of my concerns about this book is that when we uh, go through this book, and we've talked a little bit about this, there's a lot of confusion. Most of us are confused by Job. We're not sure what to think of it. It's a trying book. The dialogue's back and forth. And I think in all that, we tend to lose something that, that is, uh, we don't want to, and it's this. It's, it's the real depth and breadth of Job's godliness, his righteousness. We'll talk about the terms that God uses for him here in just a minute. And I think 
in failing to do that, we not only um, lack a kind of example God's given us in Scripture that can be helpful for us in our own pursuit of godliness and moral excellence, but there's a sense in which we do a disservice to Job himself because we're not recognizing him in the way God painted him, the way God described him. I don't think it's intentional at all, but I think it's one of the things that just tends to fall out. So my hope this morning is that we get hold a little bit at least of the depth and the breadth of Job's godliness, one. And two, that the reality of that, that no matter, not quite, but the further you test this guy, he's just gold throughout. Now he's not sinless, we know that. We know that he'll fail, and we'll look at that later. But guys, there's never been a guy on the earth like this guy. God doesn't brag specifically with the language he does about Job, about anyone else in the Bible. Now, he brags on other people, for sure. But Job is unique in the degree to which God brags on his blamelessness. And so I want to see uh, Job in the way God sees him, and then I hope that that helps us to see... um, see what we're called up to as well. Moral excellence. So we're, we're going to hang out. Job, actually, Job 1, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, Job 1 and 2. We're not going to read a long passage, guys, this morning, um, but we'll refer to a, a ton of verses out of Job, so I hope you have your study sheet. So Job 1, 1, this is God's description of, of our friend Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, And that man was, and there's four key terms here, he was blameless, he was upright, he was one who feared God, and he turned away from evil. So God's description, God's description, not his, not his his friends, God's description of Job is this guy is blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. I want to look at these terms to get some sense. What does that look like? Now, blameless does not mean sinless. Your study sheet should have a couple of references where Job says, he mentions his own sin, his own iniquity. Job didn't think he was sinless. God doesn't think Job is sinless, and that's not what blameless means. Blameless means essentially complete, genuine, authentic, or sincere. Be the opposite of hypocrisy. Here's a few examples. Joshua 24, 14. Joshua told Israel, serve God with Sincerity, blamelessness. Really do it. Don't pretend. Genesis 17:1, God said to Abram, Walk before me and be blameless. Again, it's not sinless. With genuine sincerity, you're the real deal. What we see on the outside is true of the inside and vice versa. And Psalm 119:1 said, Blessed is the one whose way is blameless that God calls us to be blameless and Job he said Job is blameless that next term he uses is upright and it just means straight like a straight line or right right in the sense that something is straight so there's a reference in Exodus 15 26 I'll mention the one in 1 Samuel 12 Samuel said I'll instruct you in the good and the right way I'm going to tell you what to do, how to do the right thing before God and before others. So blameless, I'm not doing any of the things I shouldn't, and I am what I appear to be. I'm sincere, I'm genuine. 
and upright as I'm doing the right things in life. And you'll see this in spades here in just a little bit. Now it also says the other thing is that he feared God. In fact, Job says in 28, 28, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Job understood, and we, we've said this, right? We've parsed this a little bit. Job said things that he believed in the early chapters of Job, but he believes them in a different, fuller, deeper way at chapter 42. So he knew some of this stuff. He didn't know it in the depth that he would after more of revelation of God. But he feared God. He knew God was God and he wasn't. And so he tried to, to order his life after God and God's things. He tried to live, as Scripture says throughout the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is a big deal. You know, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. You and I, no one on the planet, can order their life aright if they don't know that God is and that we should order our life after him. He feared God. And the last... There, you've got some references I won't go into there. And then he turned from evil. Uh, this is a really good. Um, you know, if you read in Proverbs, you'll see that Scripture paints the life of the believer in the Old Testament, especially as I'm going down a path. And God's path for me is straight. We could say from the New Testament, it's the straight and narrow road. And there's always the warning, don't go off that straight and narrow path. Don't go off to the right. Don't turn off to the right. Don't turn off to the left. Don't turn towards evil. Don't turn towards temptation. And Job didn't. So when God describes Job, he said he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns from evil. Uh, Christopher Ash says a couple things about him from his commentary and um, let me read you two. One of them is on your study sheet. The first is not. It says this. It says, Later in Israel's history, the fear of the Lord was that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. That's a good way to say it, isn't it? The fear of the Lord, the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. He says, for Job, not knowing that law in its fullness, remember he's not a Jew and he does not have whatever there was of the scriptures in Job's day to have, he wouldn't have had them all apparently. For Job, not knowing that law in its fullness, the fear of God consisted of a devout, pious reverence for God and a desire to please him in all he knew of him. Job was in the very best sense of the word, a genuinely religious man, you know. To be religious today is a pejorative, right? So Ash is qualifying. Now, in the best sense of the word, Job was a truly religious man, a good thing. And he says this, So Job is a real believer, genuine in his integrity, upright in his relationships, pious in his worship, penitent in his behavior. His life was marked by what we would call repentance and faith, which are still the marks of the believer today as they have always been. Job's the example of a believer even in his day in the Old Covenant. Basically, you see, and we'll walk through this because we're going to go through a bunch of texts, Job is the epitome of loving God and loving your neighbor. He is, the, he is if not the, a key Old Testament example of what does it look like, what does a Christ figure on the earth, a Messianic figure on the earth look like in the Old Testament? Well, he looks a lot like Job. He looks a lot like he loves God. He puts God and God's things first. And he loves his neighbor. And that's what you'll see 
That's what gets walked out here in just a little bit. Now think of this too. We'll, we'll look at some of these other things that are coming up in some future weeks, but God describes Job that way on the front end, right? Before any of the suffering and the loss and the counsel in heaven in which Satan's given permission to devastate this man in his life. So after the devastation occurs and Job loses all his children and all his wealth and all his servants, Job 1.20, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped. And those are all aspects of what it looked like in that time to show great grief, great suffering, great humility, great humiliation. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return, the Lord gave the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the text, remember, <laughs> this is God's word. This isn't Job's assessment. Job doesn't know most of what's going on, right? What, what brought all this stuff about in his life anyway? God says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, we'll talk later about the, this kind of devastation. How do you begin to respond to that like Job did? That's Job's response. He's blameless and he's upright. He fears God, and he turns away from evil, even in the loss of everything that he had experienced. Now, later, God also gives Satan permission to rob, take Job's health. You know, and, and then he's down in the dust, and he's covered with boils, he's covered with pain. And God says in Job 2.3, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He's still bragging on him. By the way, um, I've not only been sick for a week, but I've been unable to sleep. And so I find myself a little emotionally volatile. So if I get a little weepy, uh, bear with me, I'll get through it. <laughs> I was weeping yesterday afternoon. It's like, something wrong. I feel bad, but I have no reason. I'm just, uh, I'm a man on the edge. I'm just hanging on. I'm <laughs> hanging on. Yep. Um, yeah, he's bragging on him still. He considered my servant Job. There's none like him on the earth, a blameless man and upright who fears God and turns from evil. Verse 10, when Job's wife tells him, hey, just give it up, curse God and die, Job says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He still didn't speak evil against God, no matter what had happened. A blameless and upright man who feared God and turned from evil. In the worst experience of life, things you and I will never see, almost certainly, and Job's, he still turns up gold. And that's why I love him. I tip my hat to Job. I consider him my moral superior. I aspire to be more like Job. And I think we should. And I think that's one of the lessons that I, I don't think we take away from the book. Here's a guy that test him however you might. Those four qualifications, descriptors of him were still true. And we should aspire. And guys, we're children of God with the Holy Spirit today and the complete revelation of God's word. We should aspire to a life like Job's. That's within our reach that God would say of us, blameless upright, fearing God, turning from evil. Now stick with me. By the way, if you want, you can close your eyes. 
I invite you to close your eyes. I won't even feel bad if you do. Because I'm just going to read through a bunch of stuff that Joe, look, Chris is like, I'm all over that. Thank you. Because, it's fine with me, uh, you can see things in your imagination sometimes better, and that's what I hope you will. So, it wasn't an accident that God could call Job blameless and upright. It didn't just happen. You know what I mean? He didn't just wake up one day and, and his life is golden. What you'll find is, in these lists, we're going to go through... So when your eyes are closed, I'm reading through these, and you're seeing what this looks like in your own mind. You've got all these ways, all these areas of life in which Job worked at honoring God and blessing others, at being blameless and upright. It's almost like a hit list. And he can articulate the areas in his life in which he had put God and his neighbors first because he had been thoughtful about the whole process. So, you close your eyes if you want. We know from chapter 1 that he was a great husband. He made sacrifices for his children after they had had their feasts together. We know he was a godly husband. His wife is calling him to curse God, and he gives her a gentle rebuke and says, hey, we need to continue trusting God. Job 23, 11, and 12, Job says, my foot is held fast to his God's steps. I've kept his way. I have not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. God, guy, uh, Job was a guy that read his Bible. Whatever he had of it, Job read his Bible. He said God's word, the, the commandments of God's lips, the words of God's mouth were more important than his breakfast. That's important, isn't it? He knew something about God. He could order his ways aright because he knew God's word. Job 27, 5 and 6. This is part of Job's response to his friends who are saying basically, Job, confess that you're wicked, you're evil, you're sinful, and this is why all this suffering has happened to you. Job says, far be it from me to say that you're right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. He basically says, guys, if I should now say I'm just a sinner and God's given me what I'm due, I'd be lying like you're lying about me. I can't say it. My life is what it's supposed to be. I've been intentional about it. A whole thing. He says this in Job 29. He says, I delivered the poor. I think you guys were talking about this in Sunday school. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. <clears throat> the blessing of him who was about to perish came, sorry, came on me think about that for just a second he says the person who was at death's door their last words were to bless me he's not bragging he's saying I did everything I could for them I got the last blessing they had to give on the earth 
because of the way I treated them in their life. He says, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. A woman's lost her husband, maybe her family, maybe every hope she has for simply being cared for on the earth. And he said, she had joy because she knew I'd take care of her. He said, I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And searched out the cause of him who I did not know. And all these are the needy people, right? They can't do anything for themselves, Job said. I've made it my life's ambition to take care of the weak. <clears throat> now, if you catch some of the words in here, the poor, the blind, the lame, the needy, uh, if you look at Luke 4, and if you look at Matthew 11, these are themes taken up by Isaiah and by Jesus. These are messianic themes. That the Messiah would restore sight to the blind, the lame would walk, the blind would see, the poor would have good news preached to them. What you see in Job is a messianic figure. He says, this is what my whole life's been about. I've, I've thoughtfully, I've consciously given my life to serve others like that. He says, I searched out the cause of him who I didn't know. I heard about some poor beggar who was in trouble. I don't know him. I don't know what's going on. I went to see if I could help. Job 30, he says, did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was my soul not grieved for the needy? This is a wealthy guy. He could insulate himself with wealth and food, and he didn't have to see or know any of this. But he says, when I saw someone else who had a hard life, I felt for them. I had empathy for them. I had sympathy for them. Keep going, Job 31. He says uh, verses 1 through 12, he said he was upright in regard to the opposite sex. This is a big deal today, right? This is crazy today. This is the passage where Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look on a young woman. Guys, think of this today. All the charges, all the accusations of impropriety sexually, women on men, primarily men on women, the, the, the people in positions of power are tumbling. They didn't do what Job did. They didn't make sure that there would never be a hint of impropriety. He said, I've, <laughs> I've been careful about this. I've worked at this. Remember, Billy Graham would never be in a place alone with a woman. He was making sure he could never be charged. Mike Pence does the same thing. They've been called out as somehow being misogynist. They're like, <laughs> nothing to do with anything. I'm being careful. That's what Job was like. That Job was upright in his treatment of his own servants. You remember, there's, a, there's an old quote that says, uh, the last test of a gentleman is this, how he treats those who can be of no use to him. The servants are useful, but take that thought and apply it to the people that you don't care what they think of you, right? The people you and I live with, do we try and groom our reputation in front of them? Probably not. You know, if you want to see what a person is really like, you don't see what they're like at church, probably not at work, not in their social settings. You see what they're like at home, 
How do they treat their wife, their husband? How do they treat their kids? What we're like at home is what we are. Job's servants are on his side. He treats them well. He values them. He said he'd done right by his treatment of the poor. He refuses great wealth as something to trust in. He refuses all forms of idolatry. One of the great things in the Men's Conquer series that we've gone through, one of the definitions of an idol was anything you run to for comfort instead of God. I thought that's a pretty good definition. Anything I run to comfort for instead of God. Food, <laughs> drink, sex, whatever. I mean, right, it could be a million things. He refused all forms of idolatry. This is a key one, and, and we'll call this one out. He didn't rejoice in the hardships that came on his enemies. Isn't that interesting? He, you remember, he's not far from Lex Talionis, right? When the law is given at Sinai, it's seen as a bad thing today by a lot of people, but when God said an eye for an eye, it was that revenge cannot be greater than the harm suffered. Lex talionis was you can't kill a person because your finger was hurt. It was a restriction. Job doesn't even have that spirit. He says, when I hear my enemies have something bad going on there, I don't feel good about that. That some harmful thing is being experienced and they're my enemy and so I rejoice. I don't. God causes his son to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. Job was like God. He didn't want harm even on his enemies. And he said he fed and sheltered the traveler. Remember hospitality was such a big deal in the ancient world. Such a um, marked contrast to our own day. We don't see the need, the necessity of hospitality. It's a big deal. Remember no, no uh, hotels or very few hotels back in those days. If you came into a city, you slept in the city square. You slept outside the city walls. If somebody took you in, that was a good day. That was a good night. But hospitality is a big, big deal for God. You'll see it practiced throughout. Job practiced hospitality. So what you've got is, here's this guy. He's not, um, he's not upright. He's not blameless by accident. He's thought through all of these things. He's taken the things he knows that God has said. And, and with integrity in his heart, he's done everything he can to honor God and to love others. That he is the epitome of godliness. And you know, he doesn't suffer because he has sin in his life. And this is what they don't get to in the book, do they? And we've got to be careful about this. We'll talk more about this later. I get a concept in my mind. God's like this. That's why these things happen. Job didn't get, I suffer the, the unbelievable, unimaginable losses in my life because I've lived a righteous, upright life. That's why he got suffering. Not because he was sinful, but because he was upright. He got suffering because God could say he was upright and blameless. And we know, we've already talked in the introduction, God's after greater uprightness. God's after greater repentance. God's after greater godliness in Job's life, just like he is in ours. But Job didn't suffer as retribution for sin. 
Job's suffering came because of his upright, blameless lifestyle. That's why he was a fit person for, if you will, the experiment God ran. Remember Job, uh, Satan says, take away the blessing, he'll curse you. The only reason Job's your man is because of what, he gives you, what you give him. He doesn't do it. Now, my, my call this morning is for us to see Job as an example and to pursue a life that resembles Job. So that's one of the lessons we can take home. And I want to be careful here. You don't hear this. Um, it's easy to fall uh, into what we call today moralism. And moralism is kind of the religiosity of the day where we're good people, we do the right things. But I'm not a transformed person on the inside. We don't want moralism, okay? Uh, we want to honor God from the inside out. We want God's spirit and God's word to transform us from the inside out. And then we want a life on the outside that looks like Christ's life because that's what we're called to. So we don't, want to, we don't want to aim for moralism. It's too small a goal, frankly. Have you guys ever had somebody in your life that you said, I know enough about them that I want to be like that person? I see qualities in their life that are so outstanding that I want to hang out with them because I want to be more like them. I hope all of us have. Though I confess, I think, I think the Job type in our day, I think they're few, and I think they're far between, and I think that's why we need more like him. I think that's why God calls us to be more like that. Oh, you guys have on your, on your uh, study sheet, work through this with me for just a minute, okay? Am I characterized by, uh, the word should be blamelessness, like Job, would God call me blameless? Remember, it It doesn't mean sinless. All of us are going to sin. What we want is when we sin, we recognize it, we confess it, we're restored, and we get up and keep going forward. Blameless again. Am I characterized by blamelessness like Job? Would God say of me, man, he's blameless. If not, where am I not blameless? If I look at my life, I do the inventory, as Job certainly had done. Where would I say, you know, I know I'm not blameless in these areas. These are the areas I, maybe I've done an inventory in the past, maybe I haven't, but I know my life's not blameless in these areas. It could be anything. This is for you, this isn't for me, by the way. If you don't want to write something down so that others might see where you're not blameless, don't. But this is what we want to go home thinking about, Okay. Lord, where, where should my life change? What, what do I need to do differently? Where am I not turning from evil? Guys, this is huge for all of us. Um, you know, one of the ways you stay blameless is we turn from evil at the first temptation. Do you know what we like to do? I do. If the temptation's appealing at all. I like to do what Eve did. I like to look at it a little bit more closely. I like to little get, get a little better sense of it. What am I saying no to? 
That's a legitimate request, right? I just need, I just want to know enough more that when I say no, I know what I'm saying no to. Not such a good idea. That we want to say no to temptation at the first instance. First instance, not the second, the third, the fourth. What you'll find is you'll just develop patterns where we just keep accommodating temptation and sin. Where am I not turning from evil? What temptation do I need to learn to say no to on the front end? Uh, how about this one? Who do I know that's like Job that exemplifies godliness? Do I know someone like that? I hope all of us do. Do I know someone like that? And if I do, can I hang out with them a little bit more or more often? You know, Jesus' uh, version of discipleship, and remember that discipleship is turning out people that look like Christ. It was to hang out with these guys, these uh, knuckleheads, for three plus years, right? That's how he discipled them. He shared his life with them. So, you know, they got some stuff in the time, and they caught some stuff too, but it was that shared life together. Do we know people who display elements of the godliness of Job that we could hang out with more often. Because it is true that we tend to become like the people we hang out with. Do we know somebody like Job and can we hang out with them more often? Um, you know, uh, I had a joke with Reagan uh, before service um, because I was feeling so poorly that he knew I would not run long today. And I laughed. I said, yeah, no chance. But I might. <laughs> I, I would hate to disappoint. <laughs> um, this is another thing we can do. Read and meditate on Job. If you, if you did nothing more than took the study sheet home and looked through the passages that are cited there on Job, you start thinking about those, man, what does that look like for me? And guys, I do. When I look at the list, it's not the same for us. We don't live in the culture, the times. The times are very different for us today. What does it look like to be eyes for the blind today? Right? What does it look like to help the lame today? I mean, it is such a different world. You've got to th be thoughtful about this. You've got to think about Lord, what does it look like for me to plug into the lives of the needy around me in a way that helps, that doesn't hurt. What does it look like? It requires thoughtfulness. If you go through some of these uh, scriptures, it'll help you do that. Another thing for me, guys, is this. I would sure encourage you to do it. Read biographies of people that will call you up to a more noble life. Read biographies of people that call you up. You know, um, I was a voracious reader as a kid and uh, loved to read, loved the worlds that reading opened up to me. And long before I'd ever camped or knew anything about the glories of Colorado or the Rockies, I knew I wanted to be in the outdoors. I knew I wanted to hunt and fish. And, and, it, and though my dad had been a great outdoorsman when he was a kid, I didn't know that. But it was because of the books I read. It's because I read about Kit Carson and Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone. I loved tinkering on my bicycle because the books I read, more than one on the Wright brothers. You know, they started out bicycle shops before they built airplanes. I was transformed by the stories, the biographies of people that I read. It shaped the rest of my life. 
Those books, when I was 10 years old, they shaped what I've desired ever since. I'm, uh, in this last year and into this year, I'm trying to read books again. Um, I haven't been able to read much for a long time. The schedule's just been too busy. And I'm trying to be intentional about reading again because reading can transform us. So read books about people that led a noble life. What does that look like? For me, I'm called up to nobility. And the question, um, if someone in your circle of influence was looking for a Job, not the guy that's suffering, the guy that has this kind of lifestyle, are you a candidate? And am I a candidate? Is there any hope for the people in our circles of influence that they'll see this lived out? Any hope at all? Um, I find this interesting that... So I'm, I'm saying this. We want more Job's, okay? Not moralistically. We want transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to walk by the Spirit on the truth of God's Word, transformed from the inside out. We want to be like Job because Job was like Jesus. Uh, we, we want that. And, you know, in Job's story, there's this search, there's a sense of searching. So, do you remember in um, Job 1, 7, God says to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan says, well, I'm going to and fro on the earth. I'm walking up and down. <laughs> I'm just hanging out. I'm going here and there. Well, Peter qualifies that for, that for us, doesn't he? 1 Peter 5. Peter says, your adversary, the devil, he's prowling. This going to and fro up and down, that's not just I'm walking around. I'm prowling around. Job, the book of Job says Satan is looking for people. He's on a search. He's on a quest. He's on a mission. He's looking for people that he can harm, that he can destroy. He's looking for people. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, he conducted a search too. And he said this, I've looked around. I've conducted the polls and the surveys, and this is my conclusion. I can only find about one godly man in a thousand. And I just gave up on finding a godly woman. Some of the guys, you're sniggering, which is fine, which is good. But it's actually not a put down on women. Uh, one, he's saying this, a godly man is a rarity. And a godly woman is even more rare. This is one of the reasons, you check this out in Proverbs. In fact, I love this at a men's meeting uh, a month or two ago. Um, yeah, I'll be careful. Um, um Proverbs says a godly wife is a gift from the Lord. You know what that means? You can't buy her. You can't go out and find one. God doesn't give, it, give her to you. You're not going to get one. You can get a wife. A godly wife's a gift. Solomon says, I've done the polls. I've done the research. A godly man is almost impossible to find. A godly woman, even harder. I've looked. They're almost not there. But God also says that he's looking for people too. And this is 2 Chronicles 16.9. It's interesting 
This verse comes in a rebuke. Now the context of what we read here is this. Hanani the seer is rebuking King Asa, who was generally a good king. He did the right things, but not fully. He wasn't blameless. And basically, he'd taken his wealth to buy off another king from Assyria so that he'd be safe from the king in Israel or wherever, north. And this is what Hanani said. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro, God's looking, throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You know, if you want to... So the question for me is, am I the kind of guy or gal God's looking for? Because he's looking for people he can strongly support, like Job. You know, although God allows all that terrible suffering for Job, what does he do at the end of it all? He blesses him twofold over. Job was God's kind of man. You and I can be God's kind of person. He's looking for people whose heart is blameless towards him so that he can hold us up, so that he can strongly support us. God's looking for people like Job. We want to aspire to be a person like Job. Okay, so I've officially just gone over. Um, let me wind down quickly. Um, we said, we know, that Job is not the exception to the rule, right? Um, he's, he's a sinner, and he's in need of a Savior just like you and I are. Job needed Jesus just like you need Jesus, just like I need Jesus. So he doesn't contradict Romans 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. Job's not righteous before a holy God. He's blameless, but he's blameless ultimately because he's a man of faith. He says this in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job says, I need a Redeemer. <coughs> At the last, he will stand upon the earth. I think that's the second coming. Now he says, after my skin has thus been destroyed, after I die, and my body shrivels away, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's resurrection. You don't see a lot in the Old Testament about resurrection. This is resurrection. Job says, I have a redeemer. He lives. He's going to stand on the earth. And I am going to be raised from the dead in a flesh and blood body to see him in that day. I'll see him for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. Guys, Job believed in God's Savior, Messiah. He's blameless because he has the same Savior we have. Not ultimately sinless, neither the same Savior you and I did. Okay, well, let me close with this. I, um, my, my hope, my prayer is thinking about the, the text and the, what God points out about Job, his friend, his man Job. As, uh, my prayer is that God's eyes, when he's searching, and he is, uh, when he looks in on our little group, it wouldn't be one in a thousand that he'd say, there's one, and there's one, and there's one, and there's one, and there's one. And there's one. And there's one. 
those whose hearts are blameless because they're fully set on him. Father, we can't thank you enough for sending your son, Lord, whose qualification for suffering for our sin was his own blamelessness, his own righteousness. We needed a redeemer, and he couldn't have sin, and thank you that Jesus didn't. Lord, thanks that the blameless one took on himself the sins of the world, but Lord, far more personally, took my sin, our sin, on himself so that we could have his righteousness. Lord, would you help us to see a friend like Job as uh, encouragement uh, to get in the race, to aspire nobly, to devise noble plans, and to stand by them. Would you help us to be those ones that you can strongly support because our hearts are fully devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen.